The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. A rising death toll and thousands still unaccounted for as the frantic rescue efforts continue in Turkey and Syria following those catastrophic earthquakes. For the latest on this, I'm joined now by Guardian journalist in Turkey, Ruth Michelson, a country director for Goal in Syria, Janie Zielinski, and Chris Bean, senior professor of geophysics at the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies. Good morning and welcome to you all. Ruth, first of all, um, this is not... Uh, unfamiliar news in Turkey. There have been very devastating earthquakes uh, in the past couple of decades, but I imagine that the mood in Turkey is one of of uh, gloom and despair. Well, that's absolutely true. I mean, there have been there are constant warnings about earthquakes in Turkey, and uh, for many people, the the nineteen ninety nine earthquake that absolutely devastated uh, Istanbul and the surrounding area is very much fresh in people's minds. Um, but at the same time, you know, the, the, the focus at the moment is very much on uh, the rescue response and being able to reach people in all of the places um, that people are needing help, which is over a very, very large area. So although Turkey isn't necessarily a stranger to, to large earthquakes and devastating earthquakes of this size, there is still enormous pressure on the government to provide um, a response that reaches those who are in need. And at the moment, we're hearing that, for example, there are people in Hatay, there are people in uh, more remote areas around Karamanmaraş, which is where, um, quite close to the epicenter north of Gaziantep, that are saying that they have been trying to dig their own relatives out of the rubble, um, believing that they're still alive, hoping that they're still alive, um, but waiting for rescue teams to reach them and help so far not coming. Um, so while Turkey is not necessarily a stranger to these things, there is also, there are also naturally questions about um, the quality and, and the, the speed of the response that civilians here have. Um, obviously, Turkey, having coped with these emergencies before, albeit with international help, will have some sort of emergency planning in place. And have you seen evidence of that swinging into action efficiently? Well, it's certainly very much in action. I mean, I've been speaking to um, rescue workers that say that they're desperately trying to um, coordinate both volunteer and, and professional aid across this very large area. And, of course, it's important to consider that, you know, as much as it's possible to see this kind of coordinated response across southern Turkey, there are still major concerns about getting essential aid and provisions into northern Syria where that infrastructure simply doesn't exist or it certainly doesn't exist on this kind of a scale. Um, and so, you know, at the moment we're seeing people desperately trying to make the most of the resources that they have here. One of the aspects of Turkey that we would all be familiar with on television is, you know, sunshine and blue seas and uh, blue skies. Um, but that is not the weather that people in the areas of the earthquake are experiencing now. Absolutely. I mean, I spoke to um, somebody who's coordinating aid efforts in northern Syria yesterday who said uh, this this couldn't have happened at a worse time. And that's because parts of southern Turkey, northern Syria, are currently experiencing a major snowstorm. And so as well as incredibly damaged roads that are making it difficult for people to drive around um, and, to, and to get help to people, um, there is also the issue that people fleeing their homes that are structurally unsound or have collapsed are fleeing them into freezing temperatures where there is 
you know, a thick layer of snow on the ground. Um, and so that's obviously adding to the risks and the dangers mm. to people. And anyone buried under the rubble uh, in summertime uh, might have some hope of re- survival and rescue even over a two or three day period. But in these kind of temperatures, that's unlikely. I mean, the situation at the moment is is unclear. What What is clear is that, the you know, we are at a crucial moment um, where there are, you know, untold numbers of people trapped under the rubble in a large area. And the the next 24 hours is likely to be key in terms of in terms of being able to save as many people as it's possible to save. Uh, have the recriminations begun? Because one of the stories that immediately followed on news of the earthquake was, you know, building standards not being adhered to, uh, blocks of apartments still standing beside those which had collapsed. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, you see in, in big cities that you can rent um, apartments that will talk about earthquake proofing. And we do see this with newer developments, um, with developments that are considered um, up to code, as it were. Um, but that isn't always the case across the board. And so there are some uh, natural comments or, or questions about, um, you know, whether illegal building or whether lax regulation in places um, played a role in the, played a role in the dangers of people. All right, Ruth, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Ruth Michelson, a Guardian journalist working in Turkey. Uh, Jeannie Zielinski is Country Director for Goal uh, for Syria. Uh, Jeannie, good morning. Good morning. Um, the issue about Syria, I presume, is is that it may not be possible to get the kind of information out of Syria, this particular area, that we're getting out of Turkey. I, we have, in the case of Goal, as we have staff on the ground, uh, we have over, at least speaking for Goal, we have over 900 staff on the ground, and they are a great source of information uh, in terms of understanding what is happening, uh, how people are affected, um, and what can be done. For many of the people uh, caught up in this earthquake in Syria and that that part of the earthquake zone, it's a double tragedy that they had to flee their homes in other parts of Syria uh, to what they thought was safety, uh, only to be displaced or even or even killed. Yes, I if talking to some of my colleagues there, it's. You know, they've gone through bombings and shellings over the past 11 years. And they have said to me, this is a scale that we haven't seen before. You know, we see maybe there is a strike that hits one or two buildings, but this is something that is devastated and destroyed hundreds and hundreds of buildings. The people you have on the ground for goal, uh, what were they doing before this terrible earthquake and and what uh, kind of activities can they do now to help the situation? Yeah, before the earthquake, well, the teams, um, their support and assistance to the Syrian population varied from everything from assuring that we had water, households and camp settings, everything had access to clean water, um, to providing monthly food support 
through cash and kind of um, digital cards they can use at shops to supplement their money to um, looking at providing what we call dignified shelter to those in a camp setting. Um, and to in cases like this, there are you know emergency settings that within 72 hours we're able to reach people to provide what it, we call as uh, emergency cash so they can use it whatever their needs are. Now, the, at, at the moment, this particular area, um, who, who controls the area and how does that um, complicate issues? The area in um, what I break kind of northwest Syria into two areas, uh, which we call, and one area which uh, is known as Idlib is controlled by HTS, which in many, many countries is a sanctioned group. Uh, and then the other part, which is of northern northwest Syria, is um, called North Aleppo. It is um, a Turkey-administered um, area. So presumably access for international aid uh, should be more straightforward in the Turkish-controlled area than it would be in the other, the Idlib area. Well, actually, fortunately enough, there have we have been able to get agreement on international agreement to be able to provide support via Turkey uh, through what we call commercial routes. You know, um, supplies that can come across the border, as well as the UN supports through um, providing supplies through that same border. It is a, a truly shocking tale as it unfolds. Um, we have no real idea yet as to the, the final death toll. They were estimating somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 in uh, Syria and uh, 3,500 perhaps in, in Turkey. But those numbers are almost inevitably going to rise. Yes, and I know this is uh, for us in goal. This is, is is where our team is facing a double challenge, is because we under we've already have several. We have more than ten confirmed deaths of our staff, and so we're asking, and as well as many family members, and so we're asking staff to say the same time we're trying to find out if our all of our 900 staff are safe at the same time we're asking them to support see how they can help others so that's this is a hard thing to ask any human to do all right and also i presume we can ask irish people to to help goal in its efforts as well yes there is so many ways in very little ways and big ways that that um people can help um, so that we can then you know, help the people that have recovered uh, and gotten out of the rubble and are trying to find shelter and safety um, through, yeah, our, and the most welcome to see our website, goalglobal.org, um, to support in any way, small or big as possible. Jeannie, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Jeannie Zielinski, who's Country Director for Goal for Syria. Listening to those conversations, Chris Bean, Senior Professor of Geophysics at the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies. Chris, good morning. 
Uh, good morning, Pat. The unfolding human tragedy that is being revealed in Syria and Turkey is uh, dreadful to behold. Um, from your point of view, obviously, uh, you are moved as any human would be, but you're also presumably uh, looking at the geophysics of all of this and uh, how it happened and whether or not it was expected. Yes, I mean, it is, it's absolutely tragic and shocking um, what is happening. And, and as Ruth and Jeannie pointed out, also the weather conditions are dreadful. So it's, 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 a, it's a really, really dreadful thing. Um, what's the reason the reason that the event happened is is well known in in the broadest sense i mean if one looks at the tectonic setting of turkey it's it sits on the anatolian plate you know the these uh, tectonic plates and it's squeezed between the arabian plate and the eurasian plate the one that we're on um and it's it's getting Turkey is basically getting squashed out into the Aegean Sea. It's getting it's getting squeezed out as these two other plates uh, converge towards each other, and um, it doesn't ooze out like like putty. It actually jitters its way out. So there's a very big fault or gash right through the Earth's crust, running along the north of, of Turkey, and and Ruth referred to an event uh, back in. Um, uh, to, uh, back in the early 2000s, where 1999 actually, where there were a lot of people killed in an event on that fault. And then there's a fault to the east, where we've had this event uh, yesterday. And when the, when this, the Turkey is moving to the west, these faults are jittering. They're kind of they're failing uh, in, in earthquakes that are that we see the, the consequences of, of today. So it's really a consequence of the tectonic setting and the fact that it's been compressed by two uh, larger plates that are actually squeezing it to the to the southwest. Now, now when you say the Turkey's been squeezed, um, by how much? I mean, when these earthquakes happen, they release, if you like, the stress. That's what happens. Yes. But how much does does it move? And I mean, can the the movement of these plates, which might predict an earthquake, can they be measured? Yes. So we can actually measure the movement of the plates. We can do it in multiple ways. We can measure it uh, from satellites, actually, using GPS. They can be measured, but they can also be measured by looking at the waves that come away. The waves that cause the destruction hold a lot of information about the amount of slip on these faults. And these, these structures are absolutely enormous. So the slip, the fault that, that slipped for this, uh, for the biggest event, the 7.8 event, is probably somewhere like 170 kilometers long and 25 kilometers deep. So that's the slip area. So there's a structure that's 170 kilometers long, 25 kilometers deep into the earth and uh, has, has slipped. And the, the, the center of that slipped the most, and it slipped maybe three meters. And so it slips over, a, the, the event actually lasted 75 seconds. So the slip is occurring over 75 seconds as it ruptures from one end of that structure to the other. Um, you know, and at one stage, you know, between second 25 and second 35, it's generating enough power, it's releasing enough power to easily power the whole of Ireland uh, uh, twice, twice over. So it is there's just enormous amounts of stored energy being released. So we can actually estimate from the radiated energy that we, we measure on seismograms, um, we can actually uh, estimate how far these, these faults have slipped. And the, the difficulty is that we can't actually say, we know that all of this area is dangerous, but we can't say precisely when this, the fault is going to slip 
but we can estimate within reason in terms of time frames what the likelihood is that it will slip in a given time window. So, for example, you can say in this area, one might expect a magnitude 7 earthquake in a 50 or 60 year time window, for example. Um, that's not specific to this area, but just to give some yeah. examples. The information then is, can be used by engineers, and they say, well, okay, if we're expecting an, a magnitude, an earthquake of that magnitude, um, then we need to consider building buildings to withstand earthquakes that will occur within the lifetime of this particular building. So it becomes, rather than a problem of prediction, it becomes a, prog a problem of hazard estimation, almost like a forecast, like in the weather forecast. We don't precisely say it's going to rain at 3 o'clock tomorrow, but we give a likelihood that it will rain tomorrow. And that's because the, the system is so complex. There's so many variables in it, you know, the stress, the strength of the material, all these things and how they interact. It's not possible to precisely say exactly where and when an event will occur, but we can get an estimate of the overall chances of an event in a given time window. Um, the, the question of the likelihood then of another earthquake in a shorter time frame, you know, does this slippage of, of three metres across this massive um, substructure uh, does that give you insurance maybe for 25 years that it won't happen again? Or 